Welcome to Practical Christian Living. The man with the withered hand, in the command to stretch out your hand was the power to be able to do it. In the command to pick up your bed and walk was the power to be able to do it. And once again, I emphasize something the centurion had known. All you need to do is say the word. All we need to do is have the things that Jesus said. And when Jesus tells us something, there is power in what Jesus tells us for us to be able to do it. With the commands of Jesus come the power to carry those commands out. Today on Practical Christian Living in our series, Jesus Appointments, we are looking at the healing power of Jesus. But more than that, we are studying people who had remarkable faith in situations that seemed impossible. With more on the power we have in the name of Jesus out of Matthew chapter 8, here's Robert Furrow. We are currently covering Jesus' appointment with the centurion. It's one that I wanted to do here for a while and I finally just decided to do it. Jesus is in Capernaum and a centurion approaches him who is, of course, a Gentile. And the discourse that follows is extremely powerful and there's just a lot of really good stuff for us to be able to learn from this. So it's Matthew 8. We're going to begin in verse 5 and we'll go through verse 13. So with that said, your Bible's open. Let's pray and ask God to bless our Bible study. Father, we want to thank you again for your word. It is rich, powerful, profound, and meaningful. We want to thank you that you work in our hearts. We want to thank you that we can gather together here in your name. And for those that are gathering online or live on Reach Radio, that you are here with us. We are gathered together. It's in a different way, gathering together over radio or gathering together over some social media. But we know that you are in our midst. And we pray that you would be doing a work, that you would anoint these words as your word is anointed, and that we would be challenged and encouraged and, uh, and in, really encouraged by what you want to do as we have a sense of anticipation about how you're moving. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. The title of our message today is What Effective Prayer Looks Like. We have a man with a need who approaches Jesus and asks him for help, and we can learn what effective prayer looks like. This, uh, the centurion comes to Jesus and receives what he's asking for. However, something even more amazing is happening here because by the end of this encounter with these two, Jesus marvels over the centurion. We have a lot of places in the Bible where people marvel over Jesus and we understand that. But what happens when Jesus marvels over someone? What does he marvel over we see that in front of us. The Greek word for marvel simply means to admire. And there was something about this man that Jesus admired and wondered, put these two things together, that he admired him and that he answered his prayers. And I think it's a very powerful account for us to look in today. So uh, let's take a look at verse 5 of Matthew chapter 8. It says, Now when Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him pleading with him. Capernaum was Jesus' hometown. It was his headquarters, we could say. I don't know if I'd call it his hometown, but it was certainly his headquarters. It's where Peter lived. It's where James and John lived. It's where Matthew had his tax table and where Matthew lived. Capernaum was a larger village among villages. There were a lot of villages around it, 
but it was one of the larger if you go to Israel today Capernaum will be on your stop and they will take you to the place where they say that Peter's house was uh, I don't know whether it's Peter's house or not but when you walk the streets of Capernaum there are so many miracles that took place there the one that we're reading about here Jairus the ruler that comes to Jesus and has his daughter risen from the dead took place in Capernaum and it says a centurion this would be the lowest officer it's the lowest uh, rank of, a, as a, of an officer that you could have in the Roman army a centurion was over a hundred men I don't know whether there was more than one centurion in the area of Capernaum but there were at least a hundred soldiers that were stationed there maybe to keep things under control there and the surrounding area interesting thing about centurions and the Bible is that every time that you find them they are spoken of in a positive way there are seven times that you find centurions in the Bible you've got one coming to seek the gospel in the book of Acts remember and Peter enters into his house you've got a centurion that stands in front of the cross and says truly this was the son of God I don't know how much you can put on that but it's just interesting it's interesting that there's seven of them seven's the number of completeness it's interesting that they're talked about in a positive light always and maybe there's a little bit more there if you're the kind of Bible student that likes to dig in maybe there's a little bit more there for those of you that are interested in digging in there and it says that he pleaded with him and and the word for plead here means beg he, he had a problem and he came to Jesus and he began to beg with him. He began to plead with him. And he said, Lord, my servant is lying at home paralyzed, dreadfully tormented. The word for servant here is also the word for a child, specifically for a boy, although the word is used for a girl. It's also used for a servant. Later on in Matthew, there's a quote from Isaiah where it says my it refers to Jesus as my servant and in the Greek it's this same exact Greek word pyrus it's the same Greek word and when you go back to the Hebrew in the Old Testament it's the word for servant so I only bring that up because there are those who try to make this word servant mean something else to mean only a child or or to mean something else but Jesus is called a servant by this very same word so there's no reason for us to believe that this is anything else than a centurion that has a servant there are a lot of slaves in Rome during the time of Jesus throughout the world there were 40 million slaves there were a lot of servants and, and some of those servants had good relationships with people who were their masters or who were their owners and this man had a servant that he really cared about we're told of this centurion who came to Jesus pleading saying Lord my servant is lying home paralyzed and dreadfully tormented paralyzed simply means he was he couldn't move whatever would be the reason for his paralysis and tormented that he was just you know you don't medicine's not very advanced in those days sometimes we're tormented when we're sick and he is very tormented as well and Jesus said to him I will come and heal him so he comes to Jesus pleading and Jesus says I'll come to heal him now we're also told in one of the other Gospels that this is all done through messengers Luke is giving us a more compact version of this and that he sends messengers asking Jesus to come because the servant is lying sick and that he sends Jews to them and Jewish leaders from Capernaum and the Jewish leaders say would you come because this man's servant is lying sick and this is a good man an upright noble man 
It's a man who loves the people of Israel, and it's a man who has built a synagogue. So there's some things that we learn about this centurion from the other Gospels, that he is a noble man, that he does love the people of Israel, that he had actually built them a synagogue. And Jesus says, I will come and heal him. Now, the law never forbade that anyone could walk into a Gentile's house. But certainly there were rules that said that. There were rules that said, you, as a Jew, you, were not, you would be unclean if you walked into a Gentile's house. And so Jesus, to say that he was going to go into his house, it says the centurion answered and said, Lord, I am not worthy that you should come under my roof, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. In the other gospel, we're told that as he got close to his house, that he sent out servants from his house to stop him, probably because Jews didn't walk into Gentiles' homes. And the servants said, only say the word, that they were the ones that told Jesus these words from the centurion. You don't need to come into my house, but only speak a word and my servant will be healed. And we get the rest of the message. For I am also a man under authority, having soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard it, he marveled and said to those who followed, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. This centurion had heard of the things that Jesus had done in Capernaum. He had maybe even seen some of the things that he had done while he was there. And, and so he said, you have authority. He knew that he was more than just a messenger or more than just someone who could go and lay hands on somebody and pray and have them healed. We've been pointing out in our Jesus appointment series that Jesus commands the waves. He doesn't pray for the waves to stop. He commands them. He commands the fever to leave Peter's mother. He doesn't pray for the fever to be broken. He commands it. He commands the demon to leave. He commands the leprosy to go. He is, is speaking as God in the flesh, as the Son of God. There's something about this Roman soldier that he understands that. You don't need to come in my house and ask God to heal, but you just need to say the word. He's seen that Jesus had told a man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. With all of the healings of Jesus, there's a point of action. He doesn't just say, you're healed. He says to the man with a withered hand, stretch out your hand. He says to the man who was paralyzed, pick up your bed and go your way. When he healed, he made him do something. And in doing that something, that seed of faith kind of sprouted. The man with the withered hand in the command to stretch out your hand was the power to be able to do it. In the command to pick up your bed and walk was the power to be able to do it. And once again, I emphasize something the centurion had known. All you need to do is say the word. All we need to do is have the things that Jesus said. And when Jesus tells us something, there is power in what Jesus tells us for us to be able to do it. So when we're told to love the unlovable and we begin to love the unlovable, there's power in that to go and do it. When we're told to forgive what we normally cannot forgive, there's power to be able to forgive in the very command that Jesus gives us. Forgive or you will not be forgiven. There's power to be able to do it. The centurion noticed that and said, if you would just say the word, then my servant will be healed. Now, Jesus marvels at this man, it says. And when Jesus had heard it, he marveled. There was another Gentile. This is a Gentile. This is a, a Roman. The Messiah comes from the Jewish line. And he marvels at this Gentile. He marvels at another Gentile when he goes to Tyre. Remember, there's a woman there who asked Jesus to 
heal her, her children, I think it is. And Jesus says, it's not right to take what belongs to the children and give it to the dogs. And she says, yeah, but even the dogs get the crumbs off the table. And Jesus said, I haven't seen such faith in all of Israel. He marveled at another Gentile. See, what's happening here is God is beginning to open the door to the Gentiles. The nation of Israel was raised up as God's people, not to be a people that are inclusive, but to be a people that would minister to the Gentiles. And when we see the book of Acts open up, we see that sliver open up a little bit more. And by the end of the book of Acts, Gentiles have received the gospel. It's a wide open door and it's something that has continued on even to this day. Did you know that even as we speak, there is a revival in Brazil? There are people coming to Christ at record numbers in Brazil than ever before in the midst of the tragedy, which is particularly bad there, by the way. Did you know that in Korea right now, South Korea, there is a revival that's unlike anything that we've seen since the late 60s and the early 70s. God is moving in different places, and I do pray that God would bring revival to us. I don't know what it'd take for God to bring revival. Maybe we're going through it right now. Who knows? But I would love to see God take revival. But the door opened up and God raised up the nation of Israel so that they would be able to minister to the Gentiles. And that was never hidden in the Old Testament. In fact, in Psalms 22, where you have the prophecy by David of the Messiah being crucified, they pierced my hands and my feet. The dogs have surrounded me. Um, they say, you saved others, save yourself. All of that, they, they for my clothing, they cast lots. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Is all foretold in Psalms 22 before it happened to Jesus on the cross. And he asks, why have you forsaken me? And, and he gets the answer. And the answer, first of all, and you can, you can read this, this is the outline of, of Psalms 22. The answer, first of all, is for the people of Israel. You've answered me, it's for, the, it's for the nation of Israel. And then he says also, it goes on a little bit, then it says, for the Gentiles. It wasn't just for the people of Israel, but for a Gentiles. And then at the very end of that Psalm, it says, and for a people who have not been born yet. Not only for Gentiles, but for Gentiles of all generations. Why had God forsaken him on the cross? Because he became sin who knew no sin, so you and I could become the righteousness of God, right? And, and Jesus died so that the Gentiles could be saved. No wonder Jesus marvels when he sees a Gentile with faith. He's, he's just seeing the beginning of it. He, ha he doesn't see faith in Israel, but he sees faith in these Gentiles and he knows what's going to happen. Jew, Jewish people get saved today and there's a revival taking place among Jewish people as well. But far more Gentiles receive the Lord, e even, you know, uh, per capita. Because there's still a revival happening. God is still moving. And so he marveled when he sees this man and said to those following, Assuredly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith not in Israel. And great faith would come to the Gentiles. Now, what does this tell us? It tells us that who you are doesn't matter. Paul said, there is no Jew, there is no Greek, there is no male, there is no female. We could take that farther. There is no rich, there is no poor, there is no old, there is no young. Whatever differences we might have, whatever we might be able to categorize ourselves in, God doesn't see those things. God sees men 
women and children, and he sees their faith and he honors them. This man had faith, and even though he was a Gentile, he was honored, and it opened up the door that God's going to be moving in that way, and that if you have faith where you are, that you will be honored as well. Now, I'd like to talk a little bit about prayer because we see this man. In fact, I'd like to talk about seven things that we see as we see him coming to Jesus and pleading because this is what prayer is. Prayer is when we approach him and he responds and we see that this man received what he asked for. So there's some things here for us. Is, um, is prayer effective? Does God answer when we pray? I, I heard someone say one time that prayer doesn't change things, but prayer changes people. I couldn't agree or disagree with a statement anymore. Prayer doesn't change things. I disagree with that. We're going to talk about how prayer changes things here in just a minute. But prayer changes people. When we get into our prayer closet, when we seek God, God begins to work on our heart. When we're praying as Jesus taught us, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven and our will is being melted together with the will of God and we're surrendering to that will, there's something happening inside of us. So I understand what he might have been saying. I just think he chose the wrong phrase to say it. Things don't change when you pray. Of course they change. In fact, the Bible says, Jesus himself said, ask, seek, and knock and uh, the door will be open to you. You will find and you will receive. And it's in the continual. Continue asking, continue seeking, continue knocking. That we would in prayer say, I am not going to give up. I encourage you now to ask, seek, and knock. To make sure that you are, as the old Pentecostals would say, prayed up. Are you prayed up? Make sure you're praying. Make sure you're calling out upon God for this time because I don't know that we've seen the worst of it yet and I think that we need to be praying, praying for our nation, praying for God to intervene. When we pray, God said He will answer. You ask, you seek, you knock, and you will receive. He's promised us that. In James 6, 16, He says, the effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. We are promised that if we will pray effectively and fervently, that we will accomplish much. Jesus said in John 15, 14, if you ask anything according to my will, then I will hear you. And if I hear you, I will do what you have requested. That is, that if we align ourselves with the will of God, prayer is not the means by which we get from God what we want. Prayer is the means by which we get from God what he wants. Faith is not the means by which you get from God what you want. Faith is the means by which we get from God what, what God wants for us. And here's what I think. I think ultimately you want what God wants. You might want something that God doesn't want, but in reality, you really want what God wants for you. And so really getting a hold of it by faith and discovering the things that God has for you. So a few things to consider about prayer. First of all, you have to have things right between you and God. The effective, a fervent prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. We interchange the word righteousness and purity and holiness as if they mean the same thing. I'm holy, I'm righteous, I'm pure. But they mean three different things. To be pure means that our sin has been taken away by the, by the blood of the Lamb. 
We can walk in purity. Once we are pure, we can walk in purity when we fight off sin that we have been enslaved to and now we walk in purity before Him. But it's the absence of sin in your life. Holiness is to be set apart. God takes you as a believer and He sets you apart and you are now different and you are holy. God is holy because there is no one like Him and He is completely set apart. And you are holy because you've been set apart. Righteousness is when you have things right between you and God and between you and the people around you. When you are a righteous dude, that means you've got things right between you and God and you and people. And if you don't have things right between you and God and you and people, then it can hinder your prayers. And we learn that in 1 Peter 3, 7, where the Bible tells us that we, are, that we men are to treat our wives as a valuable vessel and not to mistreat them. And then it says, because if not, your prayers will be hindered. If you are mistreating your wife, then God's not hearing your prayers. You're, they're, they're hindered anyway. I don't know, maybe you'll hear some of them, but just strictly what it says is that they're hindered. So if you don't have a right relationship with the people around you, your prayers can be hindered. But the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. How do you make yourself righteous? You can do it right now. If you say, well, I don't know if I'm, I'm righteous. You simply ask God to forgive you of your sins. If there's anything between me and you, God, then, then make it right. And help me, I make a commitment now to make sure that things are right between me and the people around me. If you're just being a jerk to people, stop it. If you're being a jerk when you're driving, stop it. Something said partially to me. By the way, bouncing back off you and coming back at me, right? If you're just, if you're just mistreating people, then it's time for you to repent from that. Actually turn from that way. If you're mistreating your husband, if you're mistreating your wife, then it's time for you to turn from those things because these things hinder our prayers. And I think that we learn that this man is a noble man, that he loves Israel, that he built a synagogue for them, tells us that this was a man who considered, who wanted to make sure that things were right. The second is that the fervent, effective prayer of a righteous man accomplishes much. How do we pray effectively? Well, the Bible says, first of all, you don't have because you don't ask. You got to ask. When the Bible says that Jesus could not do many miracles in Nazareth, it was because they didn't ask him. It wasn't that they didn't, they brought people to him and that Jesus tried to speak uh, a healing to them and they weren't healed. It was that they didn't come to him. They had the Messiah in their midst showing the signs of his Messiahship by healing people and they did not go and ask. And there are things that you don't have because you haven't asked. You just haven't asked him. If you have faith, then you'll ask him. And so this man hears that Jesus is back in Capernaum and he goes to him and he pleads with him. He asks him. Now, the Bible also says you don't have because you ask amiss wanting to spend them on your own pleasures. So again, this helps us to understand that prayer is not a way for me to deposit in the giant vending machine in the sky to get back whatever I want. But prayer is a way for me to be able to get what I need from God, for God to intervene in my life, to get a hold of the promises that He has for me as I call out to Him. Next, don't pray to be seen by people. Remember Jesus said, when you pray, don't be like the Pharisees. Don't stand up and pray to yourself. They stand up and pray to themselves to be seen by men. Jesus said, when you pray, 
Go in your prayer closet and pray, and the God who sees you in secret will reward you openly. Make sure that you're not praying in such a way to be seen by people, but that you go into your prayer closet between you and God. Then it cannot be, well, I'm acting spiritual now, or I'm praying in a spiritual way. We pray that the Lord is speaking to you in a personal way here at Practical Christian Living. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, Calvary Tucson is open and holding physical services while being mindful of social distancing guidelines. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sunday mornings at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service online at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living Radio has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org, where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or have questions about salvation? Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com. And don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson and Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living Sunday mornings at 8.30 on KGUN 9 TV. May we walk worthy while we wait for the return of our Savior. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living.